0: Welcome to the Discovery Pod, where we talk to leading experts from the University of Adelaide about solutions to society's most pressing challenges. Unnatural, harmful and unsafe, does genetic modification really have a role to play in our food futures? Today, I'm joined by Matt Tucker, Associate Professor and Leading Plant Scientist. Morning Matt. Morning Eddie. We've been changing our food to suit our needs for generations, but controversy has surrounded genetically modified foods since they were introduced in the late 20th century. Why has there been such a strong backlash against GM foods? Are they really that bad for us? Or can they help us improve food production in the face of a changing climate and shifting nutritional demands? And how do we help people make informed food choices? Unnatural, harmful and unhealthy. Those are the criticisms that are often leveled at uh, GM foods. Let's start with unnatural. Maybe if we could unpack some of those a little bit and go on a a journey of exploration uh, into into GM foods.
1: Sure, yeah, well, you know, GM foods uh, are produced from uh, a number of sources and I'll talk about GM plants as an example. Um, And we've been producing plants, varieties for seeds, fruits, any of the the things we consume for a long time, uh, thousands of years. And that's typically done by what we would call crossing or hybridization. We take two different plant varieties together. We identify that they've got some good properties and good traits, and we combine them together. And in that process, we mix hundreds, if not thousands of different genes together. We select in the progeny of those plants and we identify the one that looks fantastic. It may have good yield, it may have a nice big grain, and, and that's that's the one that we choose to work on. So, so
0: since we've... Uh you know, since civilized has become settled, since the time of the, the Fertile Crescent and five thousand years ago, where you know new wheat uh, was was domesticated, we obviously had the domestication of rice. That's what we've been doing. Exactly. We've been selecting for the best the best types, the ones that taste the best or are most suited to the environment, and using those as, as a basis for our for our crops that we we need uh, to to eat and uh, as our food source.
1: Exactly, and and that that diversity always comes back to the genes and we know that now and that's, that's what's happened over the past you know, 30, 40 years is we've been able to pinpoint the genes that actually explain that diversity in those, in those uh, lines and those cultivars. And so now what we can do is we can actually use uh, some very um, cool uh, techniques, molecular biology techniques, genetic techniques, and we can find the gene that might be responsible for the, the property or the trait that we want. Let's say it's a big grain, for example, or a very nutritious grain and we can identify that, we can clone that gene and that gives us the potential to actually um, modify that gene to increase its level or decrease its level in, in our plant of interest.
0: Mm. So it sounds like a good thing, why, <laughs> why then is there the kind of controversy around GM if it sounds like it's a more precise way to introduce good traits whether they be nutritional traits or uh, improve production, why, why the controversy?
1: Well, it's been a very uh, interesting experience probably growing up in this field and seeing how it's changed. I think probably in the, in the late 80s and early 90s when it was just appearing, this the sort of gene technology, genetic modification whereby you can identify a gene and you can move it into your plant of interest had so much positivity around it. And then it was picked up on as being, well, potentially, no, this is this is foreign, this is working in a lab, this is not doing what we would traditionally do. And there, there became this kind of negative attitude towards it based mm. on some very interesting um, media uh, from various organisations. Now, that's all good and well, um, but I think probably what we've seen over the past 20 years of, of the technologies which we have been able to adopt and have been able to deregulate and, and get into the field there's been no problem. There's been no health benefit, uh, health benefit, um, adverse health effects. There's mm. been strong benefits for various communities, both in the um, developing world, the developed world, and also in third, um, third world countries. So um, I think probably what we've lost sight of is the, the science behind GM and gene technology. Like I said before, when you wanna cross two plants together, you're effectively combining hundreds, if not thousands of different versions of genes. Gene technology allows you to change effectively one single gene. It gives you a lot more precision, a lot more control of what, over what you're doing, and the end product uh, is actually going to be potentially a lot safer um, and easy to follow and understand that what you would find if you were actually crossing uh, from wild relatives or you know, d- diverse species to each other.
0: So I think, uh, look, we, it, it's it's right that we should have a healthy scepticism uh, around new technology that's introduced, particularly if it's going to be introduced into our food supply chain. So, but uh, I think for GMS, it's probably like a, a thirty-year hangover, isn't it, from the Franken food, and Definitely. we haven't really got over that initial negative uh, press. And well, let's also be clear that there were some pretty. Um, Uh, uh, questionable uh, kind of new new products that came on uh, scorpion toxin that was going to be introduced into uh, leaves that never got permission but there were some pretty uh, out there suggestions I think when the GM technology uh, first came around but I mean uh, aside from food we have accepted Kind of the technology behind genetic modification in, in a range of other products that we happily consume and have done for years. Do you want to go into that in a little bit more detail?
1: Exactly. I think you know a classic case is insulin, and, and um, that's that's been a, a massive change. That's that's a product which we would we'd normally used to harvest from um, animal organs in order to generate enough and. But with technological developments, we've been able to identify the gene that we can use to effectively make insulin. We can express express that in a bacterial uh, uh, solution, a GM uh, solution, and then we've been able to harvest that insulin from that, which is um, life-changing for a lot of diabetics.
0: So so the bacteria is modified so that uh, it uh, produces insulin and then insulin is harvested uh, from that plant.
1: Exactly, yeah, so it's a a wonderful use of the technology. it's also, we're seeing it uh, in, in modern times with the search for a vaccine that we might need for uh, COVID or any other virus that we might be challenged with in the, within the near future. We can use GM as a way to help try and create those vaccines by expressing the, uh, the, the part of the, the, the protein or the vaccine that we wanna use uh, in, an e- in a bacterial solution or some sort of um, uh, vector that we can use. And then that can be harvested and purified and we can use that to help Developed a vaccine that which will get tested on humans and effectively um, can help us defend against a lot of the, the diseases that we face.
0: Mm. And the, <clears throat> the actual technological base of genetic modification, uh, I mean, it's not just something that was a completely synthetic process that was invented in the lab, it actually comes from, uh, we're, we're harnessing nature's processes
1: to actually produce those. Yeah, particularly in plants, I think it's a an amazing process. It's actually built upon the knowledge that there's a certain soil bacteria which can infect plants. It's a, it's a natural process. And in the process of infecting those plants, it actually transfers some of its DNA into the plant. And um, so what scientists have been able to do is we've been able to identify that part of the DNA which normally gets transferred in by the bacteria and, and replace some of the genes that, um, that it's, it's normally transferring in. And you can therefore get your gene of interest into the host plant. And it's it's happened naturally for many of our um, plants that we eat and consume. Uh, there's been a recent paper which came out that identified 20 of the sort of fruits and vegetables that we, we eat as part of our standard diet. There's evidence that they were actually infected and transformed by this bacteria mm. at some point in their history. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's happening naturally. Uh, scientists have just been able to work out the details and add a little bit more precision to the process to, to get the outcome that we're after.
0: So it's just like brewing and fermentation, we've, uh, that's a natural yeah. process, we've taken that on board to produce copious amounts of alcohol because, uh, oh it's not good for us anyway, <laughs> no, anyway we've been able to harness that uh, for our own purposes. Um, and okay, so thanks for going through uh, the background behind that, but uh, well, what are some of the good things that have been able to do using this technology? So how, how is it helping us feed the world?
1: So there's a number of applications of of GM, and we've talked about, um, particularly in terms of health benefits, say through vaccines, but in terms of nutritional benefits uh, and helping, I guess, um, agronomic benefits. So how we can actually grow our plants in environments which are challenging has been really important. And that's that's really developing now um, with a great amount of momentum. So there's no denying uh, that our environment is changing for whatever reason that might be. And that means we have to keep speed with our plant Some varieties that we grow. And I'm, I'm talking mainly about plants here, but if you take wheat, for example, or barley, which is about a, um, you know, combined, it's about a 12 to $14 billion industry for Australia. Um, as, our, as our environment is heating up, as the temperatures are rising, we're actually losing yield effectively every year. Right. So we're looking for ways to counter that. And for example, GM is one way that we can do that. We've been able to identify genes that convey heat tolerance to those plants. That allows them to produce grain or firstly flowers and then grain in those adverse environments. So but then more probably closer to home and more um, uh, more up to date is, is things like canola and safflower. So GM canola is being grown in, in most states in Australia, has been grown around the world for a number of years uh, as a way to produce seeds which are going to produce high levels of oil that we can use for canola oil which we, we consume. And there's a new recent uh, sort of variety coming out, which is safflower, where the oil content of the seeds have been engineered for high levels of oleic acid. And this is actually being used as a substitute for the petroleum industry. Um, So, by extracting that oil, you can actually use it as an alternative to fossil fuels. Mm. Um, So, not so much in the food angle, am I talking about there, but I guess canola oil is. Uh, What we're seeing also is there's um, quite some research going on in other countries, a lot of developing countries, to try and develop. Their, um, their staple foods to carry resistance against diseases, and this has been particularly problematic uh, with things like cassava, mm. um, where they've been able to engineer them to be resistant against uh, bacteria, which would normally wipe out the whole crop. Mm. Um, so that's another example where it's made a big difference. Cotton, a lot of most of the cotton we wear is, is GM. There's there's no denying um, that's increased the yield and the um, outputs of cotton growers incredibly around the world. So. Yeah, there's a number of angles that you can take um, for GM to show some benefits. Uh, Biofortification, I haven't really touched on. This is the ability to um, modify the nutrient content of a particular grain. There's some, some nice examples in terms of uh, rice, which have been used before. So, this is golden rice, where the levels of vitamin E precursors were increased, which is uh, an aim, in the aim of that is to try and combat uh, blindness in, in some of our. Southeast Asian countries, and mm. look, that's that's faced challenges in terms of getting through regulatory loopholes um, and a lot of opposition from various uh, various groups. But it's it's demonstrated that it can be done. It just it took too long to mm. get there for it to be actually um, worth the worth the effort. I would suggest.
0: Mm. And and so we're uh, you know we're moving because uh, with uh, rice and, and grains, obviously they provide a very important uh, source of calories for for most of the world yep. I mean eighty percent of the calories or whatever from plant-based products come from just three crops um, uh, but a lot of those were it's just around was, was just around calorie provision whereas you're talking about kind of functional foods mm-hmm. that provide a more complete nutritional uh, profile and uh, so it's not only around calories it's also around nutrition which is really important
1: yeah the argument is that you know, you can go down to your local chemist and you can buy a fiber supplement or a nutrient supplement yeah, get a little of, uh, exactly. pills and, uh, yeah but really the aim is to try and bring these foods into your everyday diet without yep. you having to do that. You know, should you go and eat bread, where, where you get it from the um, bakery or whether it's from Woolies or Coles or whoever you get it from, you know, that's that should be of a certain level, uh, containing enough nutrient and be healthy enough that you can actually ingest it and eat it and, and actually get the benefits. So, um, look, you can argue for both. Uh, effectively, but I think probably we're looking for whole grain whole food value added products as we move forward to the future
0: yeah so uh, before we let uh, GM foods off the hook completely uh, let's just go because um, some of the other uh, concerns uh, i think around GM and as you said you know we were right to have concerns around these around new technologies that come in is around being unhealthy or the problem within within the environment uh, and then unhealthy for us so Uh, What are are some of those concerns and what are are the basis of those?
1: Um, So there's really very limited evidence or no evidence whatsoever to say there's actually any nutritional difference between a a GM food crop and uh, a non-GM food crop. Uh, The only difference is that you might find for example if you take a typical um, uh, plant which is grown on a farm which is not growing GM there may be slightly higher nitrogen levels in that particular plant versus one that is growing with GM, maybe it's got slightly higher levels of another compound, but nothing to do with nutrition. You know, they both can uh, give you what you need, and, and in fact, you know, the GM alternative might give you a higher uh, nutritional value. So that's been one suggestion that there's some nutritional difference between them, but you can put them in a lab and you cannot tell the difference between them. So that's that's not really a, a very valid criticism. And, and the difference wouldn't be due
0: to the process to create that crop. The difference would be due to the the characteristics of that crop at the end of the day, wouldn't it? That's right, so it's the
1: product, and this is something important when you think about regulations in Australia. Australia, we we regulate the process, so how do we actually make that GM crop and, and that Food stuff in the first place, whereas other countries such as the US regulate the the end product. What have you got on the table in front of you? Can you actually see any difference between it? There's no difference between it. Therefore, it's between them. Therefore, it's not uh, considered different. Uh, okay. So, so the US system will be more relaxed about. It, you it is, yeah, and yeah. you know, there's reasons why that could be good or could be bad. Um, I think I, I'm quite happy with our regulatory structure here. It protects us, and we need to know what techniques are being used and. It ensures that when we get a product on the market, it's been very heavily scrutinised, it's gone through the Office of the Gene Technology Regular, Australian, um, New Zealand Food Standards. So it's a potentially therapeutic goods association. There's a lot of regulations which protect us yeah. and uh, they do so for good reason. But when there's no difference, uh, you know, there's no reason why it should be stopped or impeded.
0: So a crazy scientist like yourself can't just create a new food and then release it. <laughs> <Got> <laughs> to go through all to. Of the. Yeah, that's <laughs> how you, you probably do. Uh, but uh, it's got to go through all of these systems, that's uh, right. really, before it gets into our food supply, which takes 10 years. Uh, it takes
1: a long time. And yeah. there's, you know, the, the, the organisations that do this sort of work have to have really uh, good structures in place. We have to have institutional biosafety committees that assess everyone who's working on On GM we have to have stewardship, so we need to know how it's stored, where it's stored, how it can be grown, really, really strict guidelines which are put in place. It's probably one of the most highly regulated areas (laughs) in in Australia, particularly across the world. uh, you know, when you get a GM product on the market, it's, it's going to be pretty well scrutinized. <laughs> through some
0: pretty thorough testing. Yes. Yeah. And, and so just onto the, the, the final uh, issue, which is really around, you know, bad for the environment mm-hmm. and problems with the environment. Do you want to just uh, unpack that a little bit for us?
1: That's right. So look, some opponents of GM will say, well, hang on a minute, let's take GM canola as an example, where there's one technology whereby you can spray that canola with a herbicide and because it's been modified to be resistant against that herbicide, it it will not die. However, the rest of the the, the field, which may contain weeds of, of many different uh, types or origins, they will be killed or knocked down by that herbicide.
0: So the, the canola is genetically modified to not be killed by the herbicide that's applied. Exactly. So it's basically a survivor within this uh, the, the herbicide regime uh, that that's being put in place. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And you know, the, the, the opposition will say that, um, or the opponents that will say, look, If a grower is going to grow that, they're going to grow it every year and effectively what you're going to do is you're going to be applying more and more herbicide every year, which is increasing our herbicide load. It's affecting the the biodiversity potentially in that area. Uh, But the the reality is when you've sprayed that field with that herbicide, which any other uh, grower will do, whether it's an organic grower or a normal sort of commercial grower, they'll have to use herbicide. You do that with GM canola, you do it once, you knock everything out, and there's pretty good anecdotal evidence that's come from growers in Victoria that suggests that they have not had to apply a herbicide again on that field for upwards of five years. So you know, you can put canola in one year, the next year you'll rotate and put something like barley or wheat in, which is your, probably your higher value crop, uh, and you don't have the weed problems that you might have had historically. So actually the, the argument that we're using more pesticides or more herbicides uh, in in GM crops is not uh, accurate, and there's not really any evidence to suggest that. In fact, it tends to be the other way. Even a an organic grower who you know is doing a fantastic job of using non synthetic um, compounds, however, they may have to spray their crop four or five times a season and every year in order to get the same sort of um, benefit from from their field. So. That's, that's not a great argument to use. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's certainly some evidence that it's reducing the use of herbicides and pesticides, particularly in those areas that are prone to weeds and, and certain pests.
0: Yeah. And I guess, uh, you know, again, the basis of that is not necessarily a problem
1: with the technology of how you
0: arrived at a herbicide resistant crop. It's, you know, more due to farming practices and how you implement those within the field and how you you integrate new crop varieties that have new, new performances into that, that established system because you know nobody would argue that we should be maintaining soil health uh, and
1: particularly, uh, a <laughs> particularly a
0: grower, particularly uh, a grower and so they, uh, but the, the GM crops are not diametrically opposed to, to that outcome at the end of the day.
1: But look GM food crops in particular are part of a strategy and it 's like a toolkit you know you, you need when you 're in the kitchen. You need different utensils to do different things, uh, and you're going to cook them in different pots and pans, and you're going to use different spatulas, and, and you know GM is a bit like that when it comes to farming. It's not going to be a solution for everyone, uh, but there may be a need for it in, in a particular part of a strategy, uh, and that could be more uh, prominent depending on where you are growing. So in high rainfall areas, perhaps where you have more likelihood of weeds, then maybe it becomes a solution there. But, you know, potentially in, in lower rainfall areas, maybe that's not the solution for you. Um, I think it's just important to remember that, you know, farmers do care about their fields. They're obviously, their investments for them and have been for a long time. And mm. I guess I'm talking a lot about the farmers and the growers here, but that's some, it's a good reason to maintain uh, the health of our soil is to make sure we're u- doing the right thing with our crops. And, and if GM's part of that, then then that's a good thing.
0: Yeah. But there are other production areas where GM is not part of the mix,
1: so uh, we are seeing
0: some areas in Australia where you know, some of the GM production has been relaxed in yeah. certain states, but then you're seeing certain production regions saying, well we're going to go GM-free because it potentially affects our organic status. So, uh, but that, that's okay, we can have different speed or different implementations. Of the GM policy based on consumer preferences as well.
1: Exactly. Look, there's there's really clear evidence that you can actually coexist. Uh, it's the United States is a great example. They've got a massive organic industry, flourishing organic industry. Yet they're one of the highest users of GM technology as well. So but they wouldn't
0: be doing it in the same location.
1: Would not they? in the same location. There's, there is there has to be some um, you know, distinction between those. But there's you know when we grow. GM if we talk about GM crops there needs to be exclusion zones around those GM crops to make sure that we don't have that that bleed through that's going to be something that we we need to address even better in the future in terms of stewardship how we make sure we're doing the right thing when we've got that GM uh, technology and grain to use Um, but you know you think about Victoria you know great wine areas such as the Yarra Valley you know they, they still exist in Western Australia Margaret River and yet Victoria and Western Australia have been able to grow GM crops, so South Australia hasn't had that opportunity until just recently and we'll, we'll find out in the years to come how beneficial it's been, uh, particularly to the state as a whole. It's, it's suggested that there'll be a, a monetary value gain for our state by being able to grow GM crops and that's, yeah. that's something we need to consider as we're moving forward for regional areas and young people coming forward that want to know what they're going to work on in the, in the future and what they're going to study and that's, that's an area that we need to consider.
0: And we'll probably see the grain-producing areas adopt, uh, potentially, uh, some of that technology, whereas areas like Kangaroo Island, uh, which probably uh, plays more on its organic uh, kind of status and uh, those kind of crops, will probably remain GM-free. And there'll be certain areas across the mainland which will mix and match according to their products.
1: True. It depends on the technology. You know, we're talking about canola a lot here, but I think probably over the next five to ten years, we'll see other interesting products come onto the market. That, right, okay. Um, and you know, the technology is, is not going to stop. So GM will be, eventually someone <laughs> will come over and design something better than GM. And we've seen those technologies actually happening and appearing now.
0: And it's probably true that the uh, the label GM has been applied to a range of changing technologies over yeah. the years. So GM from 30 years ago is not GM today, is it? It's uh, But it's still... Carried the hangover <laughs> of the label with it yeah. uh, through that. Yeah. So for for students uh, potentially coming into university uh, and are interested in this area, mm-hmm. interested to help, you know, feed the world and uh, uh, really get involved in in food security. What, what do you think are going to be some of the horizons of research in the next three to five years, or investigation or learning, that we're really going to need to deploy people around to, to tackle some of these problems?
1: It's Things haven't really changed that much. You still need people who are smart in the, in the fundamental research area, so understanding how we can um, see how genes work and how they can Talk to each other and how you can and modify them in plants or, or animals or whatever bacterial solution or system you want. And that's basically what you do, you find exactly. out what the genes do and then you might be interested in one and then go oh
0: that might have a use or you might uh, be directed by uh, you know, a certain production outcome and then you go hunting for genes and I guess some of the problems, some of the early, early wins were relatively easy but I guess with some of the environmental resistance it's a much more difficult. Topic, isn't it yep. to actually get
1: that? Yeah. Well, look, I think you know that the key is also communication. Extension is really important now. Uh, industry is very interested in new technology. They want to partner with research bodies, you know, universities. They want to know what technologies are available and what they should be looking for. Um, so as as you know, breeding technologies improve as. Um, as growers get interested in those sort of technologies, as the whole industry does, you know, we need to be able to communicate with those people. So I think extension is really important. So students who know how to communicate can engage with many different people. You know, those soft skills are are actually really, really uh, important for us, as as important as it is to actually understand the technology and to do the research in a, in a lab too. So um, and then the, the the field, actually getting out into the field and having the plants and being able to look at the plants and whether it's, once again, I'm talking about plants, but it could be animals as well. Um, you know, that's, that's really important. We need observant people that can, can understand what industry wants and how we can deliver it. Mm. And um, that's certainly gonna be the, the future, I think. Mm. And maybe
0: if we'd have had some of those soft skills at the start of the GM debate we might not be in the problem that we're in today it reminds me very much of the the climate change kind of issues you know the scientists carried on just saying well we're right yes uh and we're, we're kind of tone deaf uh to how that was being uh you know perceived uh by by groups uh, and also the rhetoric and the the messaging didn't change uh, based on that. So
1: yeah. exactly, yeah, it's, you you put them in the same boat effectively. GM yeah. climate change, you know, anti-vaccination, all those sorts of things, which yeah. are scientifically, it's very easy for us to explain and to to understand to each other. But when it comes to actually engaging with the the public and saying no, 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 we, we're doing this for this reason. You really need to do it, and, and it's going to have this benefit. Perhaps we've missed that opportunity. So that's. I hope that all the students I can get into my lab and recruit have those skills and (laughs) uh, moving forward, that'll make it easier.
0: So arming them for a post-truth world. Yes. (laughs) Well, Matt, thanks so much. It's been a fascinating discussion and thanks for joining us on The Discovery Pod. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to The Discovery Pod. Brought to you by the University of Adelaide.